joining our study today through the life of Joseph uh, in chapter 41 of Genesis. This is a long chapter, and though we are going to read the entire chapter, we're not going to hope to attempt uh, to cover the whole thing. We're going to do a little bit of cherry picking today, and that's okay. Uh, We're going to see, hopefully, Lord willing, we're going to see something uh, of God's grace here uh, and come away with a picture of God's work in the lives of his people. Uh, But we are going to read the entirety of the chapter, verses 1 through 57. You can find that beginning on page 34 of our ESVs, uh, if you happen to pick one up on the way in. Genesis chapter 41, uh, showing us Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream and also his rise to power. And before we go to read God's word together, please join me again in a word of prayer. O Lord, our God, we come anxious to hear a word from you, reassured by your spirit and by your promise that there is blessing here, that there is delight here. And so we pray that as sojourners in the world, you would lead us by your word. You would open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things in your law, to rejoice in who you are and to see the goodness of your mercy, to taste something of the grace that we have received in Christ. Meet us and feed us by your word and by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and Behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream, and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. And Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. 
The thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk full and good. The seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. For it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore... Let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. And let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is no so, none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. Without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. 
the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. The seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. You know, one of the many things that I have learned about myself uh, over 11 years of marriage, one of them stands out that I am a terrible television partner. Sarah and I don't watch many shows, but when we do, more often than not, they are some sort of a crime drama. And I'm the person with the unbearable habit that I have to interject at every new clue and say, oh, I, I bet it was the babysitter. I bet it was the ex-boyfriend. And I give my hypotheses as to what I think has happened and who done it. And Sarah's more patient, and she's able to watch silently. And even if she has figured it out, which she normally has, she doesn't ruin it for me. Because that's the appeal of a show like that. It's the guessing game. It's that constant search for who is the perpetrator. And so all of them uh, open almost the same way. They show you the crime scene. You know what has happened, but you don't get to figure out who has done it, who's behind it all until the end. And so for 47 minutes, they keep you guessing until those final closing shots and bum bum, the dramatic music strikes up. And you're kept guessing, and that's the appeal of that sort of thing. Well, I don't know if you noticed, but the appeal of the chapter that we just read is exactly the opposite of that. This passage begins with a mystery. It begins with another double set of cryptic dreams that no one can understand or interpret, but even the presence of that mystery tips the hat a little bit and shows you, and you know what's going on. You know exactly who is at work you know who is driving the action in this chapter. You've seen it already in a shepherd boy in Canaan. You've seen it in court officials in prison. And now you see it in the bedchambers of the king. It says, Pharaoh dreamed. And you say, I know who is at work. You see, the appeal of this passage is not that we have no idea who is behind the action, but that the Lord cannot be missed. We know from the get-go exactly who is driving the action. And from the beginning to the end, Joseph is revealing God's hand, and Pharaoh and his men are recognizing God's hand, and we recognize it too. Because the point of this passage is not to keep us in suspense, but rather to keep us in awe. In awe of the Lord whom we have come to know and recognize in his works. The point is to keep us in awe of God's power who sends plenty and famine more easily than you send an email. The point is to keep us in awe of God's pattern. Because we see him again delighting to humble those who are of high estate and to raise up those who dwell in the ashes and the dust. That's the way he works. We see God's typical pattern here. It cannot be missed. That's the beauty of this chapter 
that God's fingerprints are all over it, and perhaps you noticed them when we went through. You see God's fingerprints here in this chapter in a power that makes us tremble. It's the first fingerprint that we see, a power that makes us tremble. And we see God's power really throughout the passage in lots of different ways, but none more surprising than the way that God's power is revealed in Pharaoh. We read at the beginning of Pharaoh and his dreams, and we get the impression that if Pharaoh were the singer of a blues band, that perhaps uh, his first album might be titled A Sleepless Night in Memphis. Because you know how it goes. You've had a night like that, and you're tossing, and you're turning, and it's some sort of a fever dream, and you're not entirely sure maybe when you're awake and when you're asleep until the next morning, and you can think it all through, and you wake up sometimes in a cold sweat, and he's got these dreams that just torment him. You've had nights like that, but what's strange and and what's hard for Pharaoh about his dreams is that they don't begin as nightmares. There are some dreams that you have, you immediately recognize, you say, oh, I'm dreaming. Okay, no big deal. Pharaoh's dreams begin more gently. There's this reassuring pastoral scene in both of his dreams. There are these prize-winning cattle and amber waves of abundant grain all throughout Egypt And then his dreams turn grotesque and the cows become cannibals and the grain becomes greedy and all of Egypt's agricultural life is consumed. You don't need to know the interpretation to see the devastation in the dreams to understand why Pharaoh woke up and he was troubled. You know, normally if you have a night like that, morning is when things are all better And the sun rises, and oh, it was just a dream, but it was the morning that was much worse for Pharaoh. It says uh, in verse 8, so in the morning his spirit was troubled. Actually, the word is pounded. His spirit pounded. It's the word that we would use to describe your thumb after you've hit it with a hammer, and three hours later, every time your heart beats, you can still feel it pulsing, and you can't forget it, and his spirit is pounding, and he is undone. He's shaken to the core, and so he summons his magicians and his wise men, and you notice the language is inclusive. All the king's horses and all the king's men. Nobody can put Pharaoh back together. To no avail they come, and they offer interpretations, perhaps, that just don't seem to cut it, or they simply don't know what's going on. And here is Pharaoh with his sleepless night. And here's a curious thing that we notice in the passage. Pharaoh, you might know, is the most powerful man within a several thousand mile radius. At this time, he has resources at his disposal that would boggle your mind. Snap his finger and he's got military and counselor and money anything he wants at his beck and call. And what's more, Pharaoh is considered to be a god, at least quasi-divine, the sort of Egyptian nexus between divinity and humanity, the conduit through whom the gods speak to humans. And yet in one set of dreams, all of his power shrivels. Can you imagine the scene in the palace that next morning? Can you imagine the PR disaster if word got out? Pharaoh, the God King, has been shaken by a dream from the gods that he doesn't understand. And you can imagine the headlines. Pharaoh's approval rating falls to new low. 
local leaders say divinity greatly exaggerated. You imagine the desperation that goes into dragging a prisoner from the pit into the palace and saying, I've heard that you can help me. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. That's what Pharaoh's saying. He has nowhere else to turn. All of his wise men have failed. All of his resources have come to nothing because God's power has shown up and Pharaoh is trembling. In fact, that is the glory of the Pharaoh in this text, that he does instinctually what man normally does when confronted with the power of God. Often in Scripture, when we read Pharaoh, it's the same way that we read the word Pharisee. We paint it with a broad brush. So in the New Testament, we see Pharisee, and we equate that with enemy of the gospel. Well, in the Old Testament, we read the word Pharaoh, and we read that as dastardly wicked king. There's no evidence here that he's been converted or anything like that, but there is every indication that he is a wise man. That he does what you are supposed to do when God's power shows up. He bends. He trembles. He's a wise king because he responds appropriately. And there is uh, a, probably a contrast here between this Pharaoh and later the Pharaoh that we'll see in Exodus chapter 1. Because there it says, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not remember Joseph. You might say, well, of course he didn't remember Joseph. Nobody remembers Joseph. That was 400 years ago. But there's a contrast there between the Pharaohs of the Exodus story and the Pharaoh of Genesis. Between the Pharaoh of Genesis who saw God's power and trembled and bent under the weight of it, and the Pharaoh who hardened his heart and refused to move, even though plague after plague after plague destroyed and consumed the entire land. There's a comparison here. There's a subtle message. Don't be like that, Pharaoh. Be like this one. Recognize God's power. Tremble under God's power. And this is the fingerprint of God. This is classic Yahweh. There's no mystery here. When we see God show up in this way, we say, I know who this is. I know what's happening. This is the same God who shows up in the whirlwind and Job lays his hand over his mouth and says, I've spoken once. I will not speak again. This is the same God who who got the confession out of prideful Nebuchadnezzar when God flexed his muscle and Nebuchadnezzar says, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the God who appeared to a murderous Pharisee on the Damascus road and sent him back into the city blind and groping and praying and waiting for further instructions. This is the God of scriptures that we know and we recognize and he shows up in this power that makes us tremble. This is the God who promises that a day is coming when he is going to bend every knee on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And he's going to fill every mouth with the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord to the praise of God the Father. This is the God of scriptures that we know and you see his fingerprints here, don't you? It's this power that makes us tremble. And there's no mistaking it once you've seen it. You could ask Joseph. We can also take it almost a step further in the same theme that there's something that happens uh, generally to humanity when we recognize God's power that we tremble. But 
But take that a step further in the lives of God's people, and, and we see that God's power is able to make us firm. Not trembling, but firm. Do you notice the way Joseph comes into the court? And you can imagine the pressure on Joseph in the court to do the right thing and to say the right thing and, and to make sure you don't offend this man who could be the key to unlocking the dungeon. And what does he say? You need to know, Pharaoh, that God is at work. Three times, unashamedly, without pulling punches, he tells him, God is working. This is what you need to know, Pharaoh. He's not worried about offending. He's not worried about what the Pharaoh might think of him. He's not worried about uh, making false claims about some other deity. He tells him in verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. He tells him in verse 28, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. He tells him in verse 32, the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Here's Joseph's conviction. There is a God, and you're not him, Pharaoh. I wonder how many of us would have the backbone to say that to a king. Maybe more to our everyday occurrences. How many of us would have the backbone and believe firmly enough in God's power that we would teach our children that? We would say that to our coworkers. We would share that message that there is a God with whom we have to deal. Even if your coworkers don't tremble under the power of this God who reveals himself. You see, that's God's blessing as well. That, that in his people, he not only makes us tremble by his power, but he makes us firm in it. But this is God's fingerprint. There's a power that makes us tremble. Secondly, we see uh, that in this passage, another telltale sign that God is at work, that there is... A wisdom that makes us humble. There's a wisdom that makes us humble. And here's where we turn our attention specifically to Joseph. Because Joseph enters Pharaoh's court with something that we've not seen in Joseph yet. He enters Joseph, Pharaoh's court, rather, uh, with humility. And there are lots of good things we could say about Joseph. He is a man full of virtue by this time. We have seen his hand succeed in everything he touches. It doesn't matter that Joseph seems to be circling around the drain of Egypt. Everything he touches succeeds. No wonder he has a plan for delivering Egypt from famine. Joseph, can you run a household? Yep. How about a jail? Check. How about a, a kingdom, a vast kingdom under famine? Yeah, I can probably manage that too. No wonder we see Joseph doing well. He is, uh, he is completely capable. He's very diligent. He works hard. We've seen that. He's obviously full of integrity. What better man to put in high position in a pagan culture than one who has already shown that he will not bend when temptation comes? Lots of good things we could see and say about Joseph. He's a man of virtues, but we have not yet seen humility displayed in him. That's not hard to believe. You probably know someone who is incredibly capable and not very humble. It's a rare combination when you find somebody very capable, very virtuous, and yet also very humble. But we see that in Joseph. We see it in verse 16. He's brought in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asks him, he says, I have heard that you can interpret a dream. And he says in verse 16, it is not in me. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's one word. Hard to render in English. Maybe if you were to hyphenate, not I. I've heard that you can do this. Nope. That's the effect. 
Not me. Not me. Uh Uh-uh. And that one word speaks volumes as to what God has been doing in Joseph. Because you see, as the court officials and attendants are scrubbing the stench of the dungeon off of Joseph, they're also preparing Pharaoh. This is the guy, Pharaoh. I think he could be the one. He could be the one to tell you what you need. He could be the only man in the entire kingdom who could, who could calm your nerves. The only thing that Pharaoh knows about Joseph is that he might be useful to him. And you know the temptation to make people in high position impressed by you. That's why when you go into that job interview and they ask you that throwaway question, tell us about your weaknesses. Sometimes I work too hard, right? Sometimes I don't get along well with my coworkers because they're intimidated at how hard I work at my job. That's my strongest, uh, my biggest weakness. You know the temptation to make people impressed by what you can do. And Pharaoh brings him and he says, here's your chance, Joseph. I've heard of you that you can interpret a dream and it will come to pass. And he says, I regret to inform your majesty that you are mistaken. Joseph. Not that. Come on. Anything but that, Joseph. You didn't have to say that, did you? You could have just left it go. You could have at least flipped it the way you did before. What did he say to the officials in the dungeon? Interpretations come from God. Tell them to me. At least it gives some hint that you can help out, but he doesn't do that. The first recorded statement we have out of Joseph's mouth after he has been brought out of the dungeon is a disavowal of his ability to do exactly what he's been brought out to do. I can't do it. It's not in me. That's what he says. And there's a sense in which Joseph didn't really have a choice but to tell Pharaoh the truth, that he was not able to do this thing. If he were to hide that, if he were to let Pharaoh go on thinking, oh, this is Joseph, he's, he's pretty good. He's got the knack. He's, he's got the gift. If he were to let Pharaoh continue to think this, it would have been a betrayal of everything that God has been doing in his life for 13 years. Go back and play the home movies of Joseph's adolescence, and what do you see? You see this young, capable, gifted man sure of himself. His whole world revolves around himself. Maybe he's not prideful per se, but he's incredibly self-centered. And he tells a bad word about his brothers and he comes down to breakfast one morning. You guys won't believe the dream that I had. Wait till you hear this. He doesn't care what other people think or how it affects other people around him. He doesn't even care how it's going to affect his father and his father has to rebuke him. His entire world revolves around him. And it all would have been for nothing if Joseph had emerged from the dungeon just as capable, just as confident, just as diligent, and without a shred of humility. See, that's what the Lord has been doing in Joseph. You know this because you know how God works. Yes, God is going to elevate Joseph, but first he's going to bring him low. You know how God works. 1 Samuel chapter 2, the song of Hannah. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And the Lord is going to raise Joseph and make him inherit the seat of honor and to sit with princes, but first he's got to be in the ash heap. 
And the reason is that for 13 years, God has been refining him. In Psalm 105, we get the Old Testament interpretation as to what the Lord has been doing in Joseph. Psalm 105, and it it tells the whole thing, but there is a verse 19 right in the middle of there. It says that he was tested until what the Lord had said was going to happen came about. That's what the Lord was doing. He was testing Joseph. He was refining him until he's going to bring about this word of exaltation that Joseph, yes, would be put in a place where people would bow the knee as it was called out before his chariot. Yes, this is going to happen, but this is how God works. It's his wisdom in Joseph's life to make him sit in the dust of the earth, to humble him before the presence of the Lord so that at the proper time he can raise him up. It's God's wisdom and his timing. And it's like when you make a cheesecake. If you've ever made a cheesecake, you know that toward the end you need to keep a close eye on it. You don't want to overdo it or it will split. You don't want to underdo it or it won't set up. And so toward the end, you slide it halfway out of the oven and you give it a little jiggle. And if it jiggles just right but not enough, you know it's done. And if not, it goes back in for a few more minutes. Two years before now, when Joseph was saying to the man who was with him in the dungeon, remember me, that was two years too soon. He didn't jiggle just right. The Lord had to slide him back into the fire, back into the oven to continue to refine him, to remove the dross of self-centeredness. That's what God was doing in Joseph. It's this wisdom that makes us humble. See, Joseph is not fully formed until he could step out of the dust and stand before Pharaoh and open his mouth and say, God is able and it's not about me. I wonder if you ever wonder what God is doing in your life while it seems like you're simply waiting on him to show up and get to work already. Chances are he's refining you. It's typical Yahweh. This is the way he works, folks. It's his fingerprint written all over it and probably written all over your life. It's the wisdom of his timing. He's not going to take you out of the oven until you're completely set up. On July 21st, 1861, Union troops staged the first full-scale attack against the Confederate armies. It was known as the Battle of Bull Run, or First Manassas, and the Union army made a steady advance until a bunch of Virginians showed up under the direction of a general named Jackson. And Jackson was there, and he made a name for himself because with the reinforcements, the Confederates held their position like a stone wall, Stonewall Jackson. And pretty soon, the Union advance turned into a full-scale retreat all the way back to Washington, D.C., and it was humiliating for the forces of Lincoln. Several months later, Charles Norton, in September of 1861, he wrote an editorial in The Atlantic, and the title was The Advantages of Defeat. Here's what he writes. It is plain that our defeat at Bull Run was no true sense a disaster. We not only deserved it, we needed it. Its ultimate consequences are better than those of a victory would have been. Far from being disheartened by it, it should give us new confidence in our cause, in our strength, in our final success. Would that more Christians understood their afflictions in those terms. What is God doing in the midst of your defeat and your failure and your hardship? He's giving you confidence. 
Not in your success, not in your strength, not in your cause, but in his. So that like Joseph, he will bring you out and you can say, God is able and it's not about me. It's the wisdom of God's timing. That's what he was doing in Joseph. That's what he did in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. That is perfect in suffering. Perfect in patience and obedience. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is God's pattern and his fingerprint on Joseph's life. It's this wisdom that makes us humble. Then we know how the rest of the story plays out, don't we? And here's where we begin to skip over large portions. Because Joseph not only uh, interprets the dream correctly, not only says those words that send a shiver down every ancient Near Eastern spine, famine, but he gives them a way out, some unsolicited advice. Not only is this going to happen, but you can stave off this disaster, Pharaoh, if you will simply do what I tell you and instruct you to do. And Pharaoh is no dummy. He says, well, I thought I had a bunch of wise men, but they have proven themselves incompetent, and we can find no wise man more wise than you because God is speaking through you. And so, Joseph, you're the man for the job. And Joseph, the man that we have seen twice disrobed, and shame, and violence, and dishonor is now clothed with garments of honor and authority. He's put in a position where he begins to see God's original dream for his life coming true because he rides around in the chariot and they call out, bow the knee, go low before Joseph as he passes by. At just the right time. And he sets himself, Joseph sets himself to the work of providing. He is as industrious and as diligent and as capable as ever, and Egypt is saved from ruin because God's man was put in the right place at the right time. But then toward the end, there's another reminder that the Lord is the one who's driving the action in this passage. You see God's fingerprints again in this mercy that makes us forgetful. Shows up beginning in verse 50, a mercy that makes us forgetful. Joseph has two sons in Egypt, and he names them. It says in verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. There's something revealing about these names and the way that Joseph gives them to his sons. Because it's just now when we see Joseph naming his sons that we realize that every episode we've seen in Joseph's life thus far has been a crisis situation. For three chapters, everything we've seen for Joseph has been a pressure cooker. Pleading for his life. Resisting temptation. Pleading that he would be remembered, speaking truth to power in Pharaoh's court. But now it's just normal life. Now it's painting the nursery and picking out baby names. And we wonder, we want to look at Joseph and we wonder if the man that we will see now in civilian attire is the same man that we got to know while he was wearing his combat gear. We have the same integrity. Would be the same kind of man. Will God's work in his life be true and he doesn't disappoint? Even in the quiet of domestic life, Joseph's heart turns to the Lord. 
Oh, there's a great difference, isn't there? Many of us will call out while in the fires of affliction. But rarer is the person who recognizes God's mercy when everything's going well. And I think it's those who recognize God's mercy when everything's going well that you can see that they have recognized God's hand through those fires of affliction. But this is what we see in Joseph. Even in domestic life and quietude and ease, his heart turns to the Lord. He names his sons as living memorials, walking Ebenezer as to what the Lord has done. And Ephraim, we understand, right? Uh, That is the perfect name to show his new station in life. And the land produced abundantly, and he is at the top of his game, and so he names his son Fruitfulness because God has made him fruitful. And that makes sense. But fruitfulness isn't the first thing on Joseph's mind. And you see it because it's not the first name that he gives. The first blessing that he gives to his firstborn son, the first blessing on Joseph's mind when he thinks about what God has done for him is forgetfulness. The first Ebenezer he sets up is the fact that God has made him forget all the hardship of his father's house. If you had a past like Joseph's, you might imagine why that would be the primary thing for him. Often in scripture, we are told of the need to remember. We're told of God's glory in remembering us, but there are times we understand when forgetfulness would be a blessing and remembrance would be a curse. In 2013, NPR ran a story on 55 Americans who have been diagnosed with a condition called hyperthymesia. Its other name is highly superior autobiographical memory. People with hyperthymesia spend an inordinate amount of time dwelling on their pasts because their brains are so wired that they literally cannot forget anything. Small, mundane details that you would never think of. And what you bought in your trip to Target three years ago and how much it cost you and which aisle and where it was and every tiny little detail and they can't forget. Alexandra Wolfe is 22, or at least she was in 2013. She can remember every detail about everything she wore and ate on every day for the last decade. She remembers every conversation you've had with her and everything you said. She remembers that if on this date last year the the fan in her bedroom was running or not running. And at first, it sounds like a cool parlor trick, something to pull out at parties. Hey, hey, Alexandra, uh, what day of the week was, you know, such and such day, and and where were you? Oh, you know, I did this. But there was another man in the study, another man in the interview, and he mentioned how he is unable to forget every wrong that he has ever committed. And he is unable to forget every wrong ever committed against him. And when he remembers them, The images come back, and the emotions come back, and the anger comes back, and these memories haunt him, and he cannot shake them. So you see, there are times when being able to forget is just as much a blessing as being able to remember, and that's the blessing Joseph praises the Lord for in Manasseh. God's mercy is so good that we can forget our afflictions. Have you considered that? It is typical Yahweh. It is the God of scriptures who we know. He is able to pay back the years that the locust has eaten. He is able to swallow up death with victory. 
He's able to fill in the voids that our sins have created and the voids that have been created by others sinning against us. God's mercy is so great that we can forget our afflictions. It's clear that Joseph isn't completely forgetful. I mean, he mentions the hardships that he says he's forgotten. And he gives his sons Hebrew names, even though he says he's forgotten his father's household. It's not as though these files were simply deleted from the server. They're not non-existent. They're still there, but the pain of them has been dealt with. The sting has been removed. That was one of the things that was hardest for Joseph's brothers to wrap their minds around when they finally got a moment alone with Joseph. And their father had died and they were waiting for him to strike because they thought for sure he's nursing that grudge. He's holding on to that pain. He remembers what we've done and he's just waiting to pull the rug out from underneath of us. Joseph never strikes because the Lord was working in Joseph. He was making him humble. He was making him gracious. He was making him mercifully forgetful and that's the way the Lord works. When he shows us how much he's done for us, somehow we find ourselves forgiving things from others that we never thought we would get over. Letting go of grudges that feel so good to hold on to. And yet the Lord makes us forgetful. It's a gift to his people. There's something even more amazing than that. We don't find it in these verses, but it's the same pattern that we see in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says that for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, all the things he once thought important and impressive are not worth remembering. All the hooks on which he used to hang his human importance, all of his abilities, all of his lineage, all of his human confidence, it's of no account, and all of our achievements and possessions and abilities are entirely forgettable compared to the grace of knowing Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found in him. It's so typical of the Lord, this mercy that makes us forgetful. So we've seen God's fingerprints all over this chapter and in trembling and in humility and in forgetfulness. And if you've seen these things in Joseph, my prayer is that now you'll be able to recognize them when they show up in your life. You look back and witness God's power, recognize his wisdom, and praise him for his mercy. Would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your mercy and your power and your wisdom at work in your people. We thank you that you did not spare your son, but gave him for us so that all the things that we would be tempted to take stock in in this life would fade into oblivion as we remember him and what he's done. We pray that if there are any here that don't know your power in Christ, that don't know your mercy through the Savior, that don't know your wisdom and sending one for them, that they would hear and they would believe and repent and trust in you and receive life and grace. And for all those who are yours, O Lord, we pray that you would build us up by your goodness in us. Cause us to see your work, not only in Joseph, but in us, in one another, to encourage one another with God and the truth that you are at work. Help us, O Lord, by your grace and by your spirit to grow in your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.